I do want to read you an interesting uh, story that uh, is in our prayer bulletin. It's very short, uh, but one I think is very uh, uh, applicable to the time we live in. Uh, this is taking place in Turkey, and it reads this way. A Syrian church leader in Turkey has been serving his community during the coronavirus pandemic by transporting sick people to the hospital. One of those he transported and even escorted to the coronavirus care unit was a church member's 70-year-old father. As the man recovered in the hospital for 17 days, he thought about how Christians had cared for him even though he was a committed Muslim. When he was released from the hospital, he asked the Christian leader to pray with him as he placed his faith in Christ. Thank God for the way he is working in difficult times and for the committed Christians who are reaching out in love to others. As I was reading that story and as I was thinking about it, this seems to be fairly common in countries such as Syria, in countries where there's a great deal of persecution going on. And that is where Christians willingly place themselves in harm's way to help non-believers, to do what we would call works of kindness and works of grace. It seems, because I know that I think this way often, is that we are too easily overly concerned with our own health our own well-being and we forget that living out our faith and manifesting a, a uh, willingness to be less careful with ourselves so that we can help others who are in need of our help all the while really trusting in the Lord and and doing so for others is a testimony to Christ and who he is in Middle Eastern countries, what it often does, and what we've seen here in this story, is non-Christians really recognize what these believers are doing and the risk that they're taking. And will often then ask Christians to pray with them and to pray for them because they believe that uh, the God we say we believe in is real and that God answers our prayers. And the Lord often uses that to open the doors of their heart and their mind to believe in Christ. So perhaps we should spend some time reflecting on that and seeking the Lord's wisdom and guidance as to how we may be able to be of assistance to others. It may put us a little bit at risk. It doesn't mean that you have to stop wearing a mask if you wear a mask. It doesn't mean that you have to be foolish in one sense, even though the world may think that we're foolish. But I, th I think that we need to be willing to... Uh, do the harder things because once again as believers what we do know is that people really do die and they do die from this virus and we should also uh, be aware and realize that people who die without Christ really will go to hell and we should want them to hear the gospel and believe in the gospel and go to heaven more than we want to keep ourselves from being infected. So I'm not going to suggest or lay out any mandates that we as believers should do. I'm, I'm not going to try to manipulate anybody and say that if you're a real believer or if you really had faith, you should do such and such. Uh, because I know that the Lord hasn't called all of us to do the same thing in the same way. But I do know that sometimes we may need to be encouraged a little bit to think 
outside the box, outside of, I guess, the regular way people are thinking and approaching life. And we realize that once again, we are Christians and there are different ways to manifest our Christianity. And in times like this, when many people are worried and fearful, is very often a great time for us to step forward, to step up to the plate, taking maybe a little more risk, maybe a lot more risk than normally so that we can help others. And when they ask us, when they ask for a reason why we're doing this, or when they thank us for doing this, we, we need to be ready with a reply. A reply that, not one that where we're kind of humble and where we say, oh, it was nothing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be humble, but we need to take advantage of that opportunity at that moment when they thank us or when they ask why we're doing that. And to let them know that it's because of Christ. It's because of what Christ has done for us, because of his sacrifice for us. He's asked us to do good and to sacrifice for others. And so we need to ask the Lord to give us the wisdom that we need and give us an opportunity to be able to share the gospel with others in this way. So just a word of encouragement to you uh, to think in that way as a believer. Um, and perhaps some of us will, will kind of take that on as a challenge. So now we're, we're to our study in Romans chapter 2. And what we covered last week, we spent a lot of time dealing with, with the word and kind of a working definition of the word repentance uh, that's brought up here uh, in Romans chapter 2. We did look at a couple of other passages outside of the book of Romans. But uh, what we wanted to do was to kind of to build a, a working understanding because the call to repent is very important and one that is often either overlooked, uh, at times easily misunderstood. Sometimes it becomes just a word that we use, just a, a religious word, and it's kind of empty of content. And so we spent a lot of time looking at that, and we're going to spend a little more time with it, not so much focusing on the definition because we've done that, uh, but we're going, to, we're going to look at um, some more of the things that Paul says as he kind of fleshes out uh, these, these truths and these points that he's been bringing up. Again, that the, one of the main thrusts of this is that no matter who you are, no matter what situation you are in now or what situation you're born in, no matter what circumstances you're, you are in, we're going to be judged by God. We have nowhere to run to hide from it. And we have no way to justify any of our rebellion against God. And we're all facing that. And the only escape, which we know that he's going to get to, but for those of us who are believers, the only escape is for us to repent and to believe in Christ. And so we're going to take a look at more of the details. So uh, in chapter 2, I'm going to begin in, in verse 5. So again, before I get there, one of the things that's important... Um, about um, repentance is when it comes to true repentance and again you will hear me sometimes say that I'll talk about a true believer or true repentance and the reason why I use the word true in front of it is I want to make sure that everyone understands the the categories that we need to think in the distinctions that we need to make the distinction being that there is such a thing as a false repentance where an individual appears to repent, but they, but they don't really. Or an individual appears to believe and trust in Christ, and they really don't. Uh, so we want to make sure that we kind of differentiate, because we can fool ourselves as well as fool others. So true repentance requires a complete and a full admission of our own sinfulness. There's, there's no way to get around that. Uh, our sinfulness is, does not exist because of 
the culture we live in, uh, or because of how our family raised us. All of those definitely influence us in our sin, but we are sinful apart from that and outside of that. So it's essential to real repentance that we have this full admission that we are in absolute rebellion to God. And so the sin in our life, we need to recognize our sin and we need to reflect on it, think about it. Uh, and we've talked a little bit about that before and we'll, we'll bring it up again. So we're not going to kind of belabor the point now. But let me read to you from Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. And Paul uh, continues, says, But in accordance with, with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. So the first thing I want to do is I want to cover six things that an unrepentant sinner either refuses to do, or he will not do, or he cannot do. This will be important in helping us to identify the kind of repentance perhaps that we've experienced or that we've expressed, helping us to be able to identify or categorize the kind of repentance that's going on in the life of another. Now, sometimes people get kind of concerned about that idea of maybe evaluating someone else's repentance. And they immediately think about things such as, well, what gives you the right or what gives me the right to judge uh, or to ascertain someone's repentance. We should, we should take them at their word. I would agree with that. We should take them at their word. But we, shouldn't do, we should not do that blindly. Uh, in the same way that if you had a son or a daughter who, let's say, ha had an addiction to, to, let's say, cocaine, and it was a great threat to their life, and they appeared to go through all the right motions to clean themselves up and to turn away from what they were doing. And you want desperately to believe them. You want the best for them. And you want to believe everything they're saying as far as what they're doing to stay away from cocaine. But you don't do so with your eyes closed. You keep your eyes open. You continue to look for ongoing signs that their repentance or that their turning away from that drug is genuine. Not that you would necessarily feel bad or angry if they messed up because we want to be aware of that as well but you are going to be very concerned because you don't want them to enter back into that same kind of lifestyle so then when it comes to the individual repents let's say it's our child remember that again hell's a real place and our our children our adult children if they die without christ they're, they're going to go to hell there's nothing we can do as parents to prevent that and so that should be a very sobering thing. And so we want to be educated. We want to be informed as to uh, what genuine repentance is and what genuine repentance is not. So there's six things I want us to look at. These are not, none of these things are original with me. Uh, these various things I come up with, the, you know, the six things, the five things, the three things, most of the time uh, I've gleaned those from other things that I have read, um, other things I've looked at. Sometimes I combine I'll come across uh, maybe a list or two from uh, different preachers or commentaries, and I go, "Oh, that's pretty good." But you know, I, I think he's repeated himself here, and I, I want to add this. Over, you know, those those kind of things. So here's number one: the repent uh, he, the repentant sinner, if he refuses to reflect on personal sin. All right. So a an unrepentant sinner 
refuses to reflect on personal sin, or he won't do it. Maybe he cannot do it. The idea is, is that um, we don't just immediately dismiss our sin. Uh, we want to examine the wrong that we've done, maybe why we've done it, maybe the, the extent that we've done it. Um, that's important. We, we should have such great care and concern for other people that, because most of the time our sin is against other people. And we have a, such a, a great love for them that, that we want to understand what we've done wrong so that we can address it. So that when we ask for forgiveness, we're asking forgiveness for what we've actually done. And, and we don't want to minimize what we've done. And then also, of course, as the scripture does indicate, we've sinned against God. And we want to make sure that we recognize our sin. That, that's the best way to deal with it. It's kind of like, again, you go in to see a doctor. And let's say you've had a, a wound that's been festering on your arm. And let's say it's been festering for months. So if he just sits at his desk and says, oh, yeah, well, we'll just do this and this and talks about maybe some Neosporin and, and a Band-Aid, you're not going to be very happy with that. What you want him to do is to examine the wound, ask you more questions to determine if there's something else that's going on. Why has it been festering for months? So we want him to get to the root of the issue and not just deal with the what's obvious as far as the wound on the surface. So same idea uh, with this. So when there's no honest, internal, introspective reflection uh, on personal sin, if we don't do an inventory on our sin, uh, if we have an excuse or we want to throw the blame on someone else, if we never really feel overwhelmed by it, um, even though they may say they want forgiveness, that's an indication that their repentance is not genuine. And so that should be of a concern. Now, I would say this. That if you recognize that in a person, before you say something to them, I think it's important to pray about that. To, to ask the Lord to convict them. Ask the Lord to uh, move them in a direction where they will begin to take their own sins seriously and reflect on that. Uh, I think it's very important to pray for that. For God to prepare the heart, perhaps they'll begin to uh, do, these, do these things even before you say something, and that would be unnecessary. But I also think that it prepares our own hearts to say something in, in a proper way if we've been praying for that individual for several days or several weeks about these things that we've observed. We want to make sure that we are actually observing what we think we're observing. You know, uh, it kind of goes back to what Jesus said about removing the plank from your own eye before you remove the speck from your brother's eye. Uh, we want to make sure that we are on the right track and we have the right tone and the right attitude. So again, that's a very important aspect uh, for us to recognize that someone who's unre truly unrepentant, no matter how much they say that they're repenting, if they're refusing or, or they're not reflecting on, on their own uh, personal sin, uh, there's a problem. Secondly, and this comes from verse 7, they don't recognize or acknowledge divine wrath. In other words, they somehow feel they don't deserve it. So they might even agree with you that they deserve God's judgment to a degree, but the idea of God's hot wrath, um, you know, God's great displeasure, they sense or maybe say, or, or maybe they won't acknowledge that, that they deserve that. Uh, a lot of Christians will give lip service that, yes, we, we, we've been delivered from hell. I deserve God's judgment. But there's no real sense that they really deserved the worst form of judgment. We're... We're conditioned almost as human beings to think of those who've done worse things than us. And we take comfort in that. 
We may not even express it verbally, but our brains work very quickly. And internally, we'll have these thoughts of individuals who uh, have done such atrocities that we are slightly comforted, even in our silence, and have a little bit of confidence that we'll be able to stand before the Lord uh, because we're not as bad as those individuals. Uh, We need to immediately eliminate that from our mind. So again, we must deal with our sin because our sin has immense and eternal consequences. No matter how minor you think your sin is, no matter how how minor anyone else thinks their sin is, it's immense. Now, as we think about this, remember that when we share the gospel with people, one of the things that we do, and you may not do it the first time you talk to somebody, but but if we're going to get to this point with them, you know, we do talk about the fact that they are a sinner and they, they deserve God's judgment. That individual is just like you and I. They don't really think they're that bad. They may even admit that they're pretty bad, but they're not that bad. So just keep in mind that when it comes to this kind of thing, um, you and I, it's not our responsibility to make them feel guilty, to make them feel this. Uh, The only way we could do that would be by manipulating them. Don't even try to, to do that. Just ask the Lord to convict them of their sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. He does it better than any of us. If, if someone feels guilty for their sin because you're yelling at them or because you're scolding them, we haven't really accomplished much. We, we want them to, to feel or to have a, a genuine sense of their guilt that comes from God. And we, and we want them to know that it comes from God. You know, a gnawing that doesn't go away. So true repentance is driven oftentimes out of a fear of divine wrath. I've, I've heard some people say that if the only reason you came to Christ was because you were afraid of, of God's judgment, they sometimes will say that they uh, question your salvation. Well, I think a lot of people, when they first come to Christ, that's foremost on their mind. Now, it doesn't remain the only thing on their mind through the months and the years ahead, but it's a driving factor. Nobody wants to be under God's judgment. I know that I don't. So, true repentance comes out of a, out of a fear of divine wrath. I think it motivates it. Remember that people were coming to uh, John the baptizer uh, in the gospels, they were seeking the baptism he, that he was giving. They needed to confess that, uh, that they weren't in the kingdom. They were outside the kingdom. They had to confess they were no better than a Gentile and they, they needed to come, uh, and prepare their hearts to receive the Messiah, uh, by repentance. And they were willing, they were willing to repent because they wanted to flee the wrath to come. And so that's a proper motivation. And again, someone who is unrepentant, um, they don't do that, or they, they don't want to do that. Thirdly, they believe they can avoid God's wrath by maybe religious ceremony, by baptism, partaking of communion, uh, that kind of thing. And that, that's why John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, when people came, uh, remember that I think there was a group of Pharisees that had to come to see what he was doing, and he uh, was kind of yelling at them and, and said, who warned you uh, about the, you know, the judgment to come? So we need to recognize that, again, it's human nature for us to think that things that we do will put us in the good graces of God. I've talked to many people who, without even thinking about it, say, well, I mean, I know I deserve God's judgment, but I've been baptized. I try to go to church most Sundays. Um, I'm always there when my church takes communion. As if somehow God's impressed by that. Remember, God sees our heart. The 
participation in all of the in these rituals that's that's for our sake it's not for god's sake you know he's he's commanded us to do these but not because it does something for him it doesn't do anything for him it does something for us and so the good that we do the money that we give all those things are good but remember that they do not shave off or lessen the degree of god's wrath on us because of our sin and so that needs to become a settled truth in our life. And it's something that if you have children, you need to really stress to your child. Help them to understand God's wrath and their lack of goodness. I know that sounds negative. It's just truth. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, beat them up and tell them they're no good, and they're worms, and that they need to sleep outside in the mud. It doesn't mean any of that. But they need to come to an understanding. And the best way for them to come to that understanding is for them to hear you talk about how you deserve God's wrath. And how grateful you are that God has saved you from that. And that uh, Christ has uh, taken on your judgment uh, on the cross. So we need to make sure that we, in as, from as many angles as possible, and as many ways as possible throughout their lives, illustrate that. So that sinks into their heart and mind. And as it sinks in intellectually, I believe, the Lord then will use that to cause that the, that for that truth to grip their heart. You and I can't make truth grip their heart, but God can. But we do have a responsibility to give them that truth and to teach them that. Then fourthly, which comes from verse 8, um, uh, we, we need to make sure that we, uh, we renounce our family ancestry. It doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't matter if your dad or your grandfather were pastors. It may be interesting, may make for great discussion, but it doesn't mean anything when it comes to your salvation. The fact that uh, you have close relatives that are missionaries. We don't derive any glory from that. And we certainly don't derive any righteousness from that. We need to believe in Christ. We need to repent. And those who, repent, those who are unrepentant uh, tend to uh, think somehow that family connections, circumstances, will enable them to be in a better position to maybe endure the wrath of God. Nobody can endure the wrath of God. Fifthly, those who refuse to repent never reveal spiritual transformation. That's why Paul says, therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, Paul says that if repentance is real, it will show up in your conduct. It will show up in your behavior. It will show up in your attitude. It will show up in your actions. We need to see the fruit. Um, we, we can't emphasize that enough, but we want to be careful that we're not communicating that somehow we either get saved by being good or that we stay saved by being good. So that, there's, a, there's a tension there. But we don't want to ignore this idea that every single individual who comes to Christ is going to have a transformed or a transforming life. Even if you were fairly decent and moral, we're going to be changing as we get closer to the Lord and walk with the Lord for a longer period of time. The Bible views that as being normal, that that's going to happen. Even the internal changes are going to become visible to other people. It, it, it's, uh, it doesn't mean that it's you know visible every single day, every week. It's just generally speaking, your life is progressing the way that it should. 
Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 19. When the wicked turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live. Throughout the Bible, God talks about the wicked and, uh, and, and changing and, be, and becoming individuals who live according to righteousness. That's the righteousness of God. Again, they don't turn to righteousness, the, to the righteousness of God to be saved. Because they put their faith and trust in God, they then begin to pursue righteousness and holiness. So we want to make sure that we always keep that in the forefront of our mind as we go through all of this. There are several different things that we need to kind of keep in tension. Uh, we don't want to lose those things because we, we don't want to become lopsided in our thinking or in our lives as Christians. So that's why Romans is such a great book for both believers and non-believers. If you really want to help somebody understand uh, what life is all about, to understand the gospel, to understand how we are to live, to understand how God views the world, how God views us, how is salvation attainable, why is salvation necessary. Uh, the book of Romans is just slap full of all the truth that we need. And uh, I do think it's a, it's a great study to take believers through. Um, it doesn't mean it's the only book you can take. I mean, non-believers do. It's not the only book you can use with non-believers, but it, it's a good one to choose. Uh, you may have to spend more time explaining things, but it does a great job. So again, the evidence of repentance then is righteous deeds. That's why Romans chapter 2 does say that God is going to finally uh, judge us on our deeds because our deeds aren't the way we earn our salvation, but they are the demonstration that we've been saved by grace. So again, if there's true repentance, there's going to be a deep, honest evaluation of one's sinfulness. There's going to be a recognition of divine wrath. There's going to be a rejection of any religious ritual, whatever that ritual might be, as a means of salvation. There's going to be, uh, there's, there is going to be, in true repentance, the revelation of a real transformation that shows up in an unselfish act of love, or maybe I should say unselfish acts of love. Uh, un, an, an unselfish life of love that's lived towards others. Kind of like the man, the Syrian man that we read about earlier as we before we began our study who was transporting people and escorting them into the coronavirus um, clinics there in Syria. So again, we preach, we teach that God will forgive all of our sin if you repent and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and as Messiah. Uh, and so uh, both the preaching of John and the preaching of Paul They've been concerned not only to preach repentance and acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, um, but again, uh, John and Paul are both very much aware that there's such a thing as shallow repentance. Uh, they're very used to it because it was, it was standard in Israel. There were many religious people who were uh, involved in or manifesting shallow repentance. They, they were very religious. And so to go through the motions would be very easy. It's kind of like the danger um, that people face today that have maybe gone to church for a long time. Maybe you've gone to church most of your life, beginning as a child. When that happens, we learn the vocabulary. Uh, we learn the way people act. Uh, we, we see firsthand uh, the kinds of attitudes people display. And so the danger is, is that we can begin to take on the part, and yet there's been no heart change. Now, it doesn't mean if you're raised that way that if you say you're saved, you're not saved. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we're more easily deceived in that area. And so we, we need to make sure that we, again, examine our life and then also make sure that if we are raising our family, our kids are being raised in a Christian home, we need to make sure that uh, they understand that shallow repentance is no good. 
So that would begin with when we correct them for wrongdoing, when they apologize and ask for forgiveness. We can often tell by their attitude uh, if that repentance is shallow. And if it turns out to be shallow, we need to call them on it. Again, there's no reason to embarrass your children, but there are many opportunities that we have to share spiritual truth with our children. It's, it's more important than, than good grades. Now, I'm not saying that we should abandon, encouraging them to study hard and get good grades, but too often we abandon the other. Spiritual training takes many forms. I do think that a great deal of valuable spiritual training takes place in those spontaneous moments where your child is hit the other child they say they're sorry you can tell by their attitude they're not sorry and so now as you correct them for both that and for the action you can bring in uh, again using yourself as an example that God doesn't allow you to get away with shallow repentance and you're not going to allow them to get away with shallow repentance uh, because again it reveals the sin in our heart so for many people in Israel, hypocrisy, because that's what we're talking about, it was a way of life. Uh, they'd mastered the art, really, of, of in intricate hypocrisy. Uh, from, the, from the leaders down, the scribes, the Pharisees, man, they had it worked out. Uh, and um, so some, some even believed that they had kind of created a, a hypocritical actions as being a fine art. I mean, they, they, could, uh, they, they could fool seasoned veterans, so to speak into thinking that they were extremely religious. So since the whole nation was predominantly hypocritical at that time, uh, they were very used to this shallow repentance or a superficial repentance. And so John, when he was there preaching, he was very much aware of the fact that that's the work of Satan and that Satan really is very religious, very, very religious. And he devotes his time and effort to deceiving people about their spiritual condition really through false religion. Or maybe we could say false relig religiosity um, whether you pursue a different religion or you just um, pursue Christianity and, and you get involved in church life and certain Christian rituals um, to appear or to feel maybe more spiritual, he, he's an expert at that. And he, he wants you to experience that. In fact, believe it or not, Satan wants you to go to church and to feel close to God when you're not. He wants you to feel a sense of emotional fulfillment because he doesn't want you to have spiritual fulfillment. We sometimes think it's the same thing. They might be kind of close together, but they're not the same thing. They're very different. So we need to kind of be on our guard. And part of that is absorbing this information and recognizing it as being true. Remember that Satan himself can appear as an angel of light. That's what the scripture says. Um, when in fact he himself is the demon of darkness. And his, those that are under him, you know, they disguise themselves as angels of light. And they go around to do the work, really, of shallow repentance. Uh, so they're, they're counterfeiters. And so that's how it was in Israel. That's how it was in the time of John. And a lot of that still was taking place when Paul was around. So again, because there was a great deal of shallow and superficial religion, uh, John and Paul both preached what would be called hard truth. It was harsh. It was confrontive. It was unrelenting. It was penetrating. It was convicting uh, because they understood how predominant that shallowness was. And so uh, even though our country really isn't a Christian country at all anymore, it's still fairly religious. A lot of people claim to be Christians. A lot of people say they go to church. 
a, you know, at least a few times a year, thinking somehow that that's a good thing or that's enough. Um, and again, when I say enough, I'm not saying you need to go to church more to be saved. I'm just saying that if you're saved, you want to be in church and be with God's people on a regular basis. The Bible describes that as being weekly um, to to honor the Lord and and to be encouraged and to be fed by the Word of God. So we need to make sure that we kind of follow this pattern that John and Paul have given us here. Don't be afraid to say the hard truths. That when someone says to you, maybe even a dear friend says, well, some, let's say somehow what happens when they die comes up. And they say, well, I've tried to be pretty good. You know, I've, I've tried to go to church. That's the moment that we call upon the Lord to help us to be brave. Because I guess in a sense, we're risking our friendship with them. You don't have to be crass. You don't have to be mean-spirited or angry. But you are going to take a risk. I know it's sometimes, maybe it's often, we're not willing to take that risk. Our friendship with that person or what they think of us becomes much more important to us than what Christ thinks or the destination of their soul. We don't think of it that way at that moment, but we should. Because we need to think about these things soberly. So it's, it's a good thing for us to ask God now to help us to be brave and to be bold. And when those situations come up and they say, well, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm going to do okay. I, I've been good most of my life and I'm sure that my, my good outweighs my bad. You just need to let them know that God isn't going to weigh their good deeds against their bad deeds. That's not how judgment works. Because the Bible also says clearly that our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. So the only thing God is judging is our sin. There are no good works. See, that's how different we think compared to the truth that God gives us. We think that we have good works and bad works. The Bible makes it clear that we might do things that are relatively good in the sight of human beings, but in the sight of God, as far as salvation or rewards that we might earn, they don't account for anything because they are filthy. They're done in disbelief. They're done in unbelief. They're actually done in rebellion because every moment that we refuse to trust in Christ, we're living in rebellion. So therefore, everything we do is done in the spirit and attitude of rebellion against God. How can that be good? It's not. So there's a lot of serious things here that we need to uh, to contemplate. So again, uh, let me just kind of uh, if you if you if you've not read it before, you you might want to read Matthew seven, because in there uh, there's a group of people who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? You know, they preached, they did miracles in the name of Jesus, and then he says this to them. He says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And the phrase there, I never knew you, in, in the Greek language, is very emphatic. And so it could read this way. I have never at any time known who you are. To me, that one of the worst nightmares a person can have is a nightmare where you are standing before the Lord. And he says, I have never known who you are. And you're a person who's perhaps been the church quite a few quite a few times maybe even read your bible a few times tried to do good and for god the judge to say that he never has never known you talk about having a lump in your throat 
and being unable to breathe and having a panic attack all at the same time, that's when you're going to have it. So, Jesus described these individuals this way. In, in the book of Titus, these people are described as those who profess to know God, but in their works or in their daily habitual living, they, they deny him. 2 Timothy 2.19 also says the same thing. Let me read these verses. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Those are just really pretty clear. It doesn't mean, again, that as a believer, you're never going to sin again. But this idea of living in sin, living as we did before, living in unrepentant sin, the Bible doesn't know anything about that. I, I admit there may be times they're troubling and discouraging and, and hard to understand where we go through, I guess, maybe seasons of sin um, that should be really rare in our life. But at some point, there is a line somewhere where we need to recognize that I'm still doing this. I, I don't know Christ. And so we should ask, perhaps we should ask the Lord to speak to us. Say, Lord, show me. Do I, you know, do I belong to you? Now, I'm not saying that if you're an individual who's prone to always questioning your salvation, you should do that. That's probably not healthy. But for those of us who are taking a stock of our life and recognize legitimate sin because sometimes people who are kind of OCD in their thoughts imagine all kinds of things and all kinds of sin in their life and there may not really be that much going on but I'm talking about an individual who has substantial legitimate sin and it doesn't have to be big it doesn't mean that they're committing adultery it could be a lot of things but when that's going on uh, if, if you're like that you need to talk to a, a very mature believer and ask them to help you evaluate where you are and, and through that and the reading of the word of God and prayer, I believe the Lord will reveal to you whether you belong to him or not. And that's important. Now back to our list, because we've covered only five, and I said there were six. So sixthly, uh, those who refuse to repent or seem to, to repent, refuse to embrace fully Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other name. There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And so the idea there is that I embrace Christ as the only way of salvation. I put all of my marbles in one basket. Uh, if you're, I guess if you're betting or investing, you don't want to do that. But when it comes to salvation, there is no other way. And the basket is Christ. And we need to make sure that, that as the scripture declares, there is no other name, no other person uh, under heaven that... Um, will bring us salvation. We must embrace Christ and Christ alone. We must embrace his exclusive claim. Remember, Jesus said he was the only way. In our day and age, that's not a popular position to take. When it comes to religion, people in general believe it's arrogant for us to say that we have the truth and no one else does. But let's think about that for a minute. If religion is true, then every religion that people believe in, they believe this, they believe that, that what they have is the truth. Why would they hold on to their religion if they didn't believe it was the truth? So the Muslim believes that what they believe is true. It must be exclusively true because Islam teaches things that are different than Christianity. It teaches things that contradict Christianity. 
one who's Buddhist. They teach things that are contradictory to Christianity. They all can't be true. And if they all have elements of truth, that means they all have elements of error. So whatever religion an individual holds to, they must believe that it is exclusively true. Or it would make no sense either to claim that they believe that it's true or they really don't even think that religion matters. Maybe they've gotten caught up in secular thinking and they think there's no such thing as moral absolutes, which is an absolute statement, by the way, but uh, there's just a lot of confusion with that. And so people are really mixed up. So we want to push that issue, push back when someone says that, that we're arrogant if, if we teach that. They'd say, well, everybody, everybody believes that. Um, if, they, if they didn't, we wouldn't have all these different religions. And uh, so we need to remember that, that an individual then who becomes a believer in Jesus Christ must embrace Christ and Christ alone and reject everything else that's out there when it comes to uh, salvation and ways to salvation, ways to be forgiven. So we are renouncing really all that we believe before. That's why in other parts of the world, if someone is a, a Muslim, if someone is, is Jewish, uh, when, they, when they become believers, they know they have to renounce everything they were before. Their families also recognize that, and so they are often rejected, treated poorly, disowned in some cases. Uh, I'm, you've, you've heard the reports of honor killing. That re- it's a real thing. It takes place in a, in a Muslim family that if somebody converts to Christianity, they, they believe it's their duty to kill them. Uh, I've heard different reasons why. I've heard some say that it's important to, to kill their family member before baptism because they, they somehow think that if that person is baptized, it's kind of like the point of no return. So they're, 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 they're preserving the honor of the family and then preserving the honor of, of Muhammad and the honor of Allah and the honor of the Quran. Um, but there are hundreds every day that come to Christ in the Middle East that are willing to take that risk because they recognize the truth of Christ. I've been in countries in Mauritius and in um, places such as that where uh, every single person who's a believer, um, unless they were from the unusual situation of being raised in a Christian family, has experienced some form of persecution where family has rejected them, disowned them, or at least no longer speaks to them, or someone has forbidden everyone else in the family from speaking to them. No matter what kind of difficulty they get in, they will never be helped. That kind of, they all have experienced that uh, in those countries. Um, and so there is a renouncing of everything. That's what it means to repent. We're turning away from, not just our sin, where we're turning away from our, re- our rebellious beliefs, everything that was in a, uh, contrast, everything that, everything that was against what God has said. We're turning away from that and turning towards God. So we do need to, uh, to remember that. So again, um, there is no other name uh, which we must be saved. And again, that's why Paul says this. Again, but in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So we need to ask the question, where, where are you in your heart of hearts, so to speak, towards God? Where are you with that? Here, when he says that you're treasuring up for yourself wrath, uh, the picture that Paul is drawing is is like you, you have uh, it's like you're walking around and there's a uh, a container that's holding the wrath of God. God is angry about your sin, but as each day goes by, you continue to sin, 
And so you're, there's more and more wrath. You're, you're accumulating more and more wrath. You're making it worse for yourself every day that you live in rebellion to God. Every day that you refuse to acknowledge Christ. Uh, you're storing up. It's like you're treasuring up uh, the wrath of God. And, of course, what that will reveal in the end is that God's judgment is righteous. That, that's what, when, when, if, I don't know how it's going to work in the sense, I don't know if people, other people will see God's righteous judgment on you for your sin. Uh, I don't know if they were going to see God's righteous judgment on me for my sin. I no longer have to worry about that because Christ has paid the price for my sin. And so I'm now free from that. But, the, so, so if there is this, ability to observe the only conclusion that people will come to when they see God's wrath being poured out on you is that yeah God is a righteous God that, that's that's their conclusion no one's going to say man I feel sorry for him or for her they got the bad end of the stick or the short of the stick that's not going to happen because everyone's going to see the truth for what it is they're going to see the ugliness of your sin and that it's, that it's just this out and out rebellion against God. And everyone is going to willingly acknowledge and know that God is righteous in what he does with your judgment. So we're just in a bad place. And, and Paul is doing us a, a great favor. God is doing us a great act of mercy and grace by revealing the truth to us. So that we will know. So we will know what the future has in store for us. And so that we'll be able to come clean and escape that that's why again john the baptizer what did he preach escape the wrath to come there's there's a coming judgment it's a righteous judgment god's not out of control it's a, it's a measured violence uh that god is bringing on those who have been living in just absolute rebellion to him so we need to ask ourselves in these questions again where where is my heart towards god um are you or have you truly repented uh, of the Lord? Uh, is your heart hard? Is it impotent? Um, and, and ask the Lord to help you with that. Let me read verses uh, 6 through 11. We're going to continue on uh, with this. Again, we're still in Romans 2. So I'm going to start in verse 6. Who, that's speaking of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey, un but obey unrighteousness, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So basically, again, the first three chapters of Romans are designed to stop every mouth, so that, again, no one can claim that he or she is exempt from God's judgment. Right? That's what we need to understand. No one is exempt from God's judgment. And remember, we've already answered the question, what about the person who's never heard the gospel? They're not exempt from God's judgment. We showed how God is just and righteous in that and how that person is without excuse. We went into a great deal about de detail about that. So where that person was born in the first century, where they were born before Christ was born, and the individual was born tomorrow, uh, again, there is no one who's exempt uh, from God's righteous judgment. There is no one who's innocent. Uh, we often talk about individual, we talk about innocent victims. Somebody was murdered and we say, well, they were innocent. Well, innocent is not the best word. Uh, maybe they weren't guilty of doing anything harmful towards the person who killed them, but no one is innocent. The Bible does make that clear uh, to us. 
So there's no one who can claim that he doesn't need to be evaluated by God's divine standard. Remember, God created everything and he created us and gave us life. God has the right to hold us to this standard. So from chapter 1, verse 18, which we began many, many weeks ago, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, so we're kind of in the middle of it, all we're dealing with is bad news. Now, it doesn't end with that, but we have to have a good grasp of the bad news because that helps us to really appreciate the good news that we're going to receive. So remember, it doesn't end with bad news because sometimes, you know, it's like the world has a lopsided view of, of believers and of what we believe as Christians. You know, you hear people say things like, we're always negative, always talking about sin, always talking about judgment, and all we have is bad news. That isn't all we have, but we do try to be realist, and we need to understand where we really stand as individuals, where all of us stand as individuals. And grasping the bad news is a normal part of a logical, intelligent life. Again, if you go to the doctor, and let's say you're worried because you have a, a lump in your back or a lump on your chest. You want the doctor to be honest with you. You don't want the doctor to say, well, I don't believe in giving people bad news. So let's just talk about the good news. Uh, no, that's not what I want. What I want is the real news and I want all of it. Because you want to know where you stand. This lump, is it cancerous? Do I need to be concerned? Can it be addressed? Will it shorten my lifespan? Will it inhibit my ability to, or my quality of life? Will it inhibit me from doing the things I would like to do? Well, there's all these questions that we have. And I don't want some doctor who says, well, I just don't believe in talking about the bad thing. No, we want all of it. And so that's what God deals with us as if we are mature, intelligent, competent people. And he's giving us the truth. And that's what Paul's doing. So, uh, let me read to you from Psalm 62, verse 12. It says, Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. So each time we speak of God's judgment, it continually points out the fact that we're going to be judged for what we actually do. So I've mentioned this before, but God holds us 100% responsible for everything that we do. We cannot blame anyone. It's very popular in psychology today to blame our upbringing, our culture, our neighborhood, our genes. But that's not the truth. All of those things, again, may influence us. My culture definitely influences me in my sin. The way I was ra raised will influence me into, in my sin. My genetic makeup may influence me in my sin. It doesn't make me sin. I do that on my own, apart from my genetics. But my genetic, genetic makeup may influence me in that area. It doesn't absolve me of responsibility. Now, that can be very difficult for some people to grab because we so desperately want to blame it, someone or something else, at least in part, we're stubborn about that. We, we, we say, well, yeah, I'm wrong, but I'm not completely wrong. You people say that all the time. You know, well, I, I'm not always wrong. Uh, and so we need to dismiss that from our minds and just embrace what God has said. God isn't telling these things because he wants to put us down. He wants us to know the truth. There's no shame in that. There is truly no shame in recognizing what God has said.
So here, he talks about, uh, when you read uh, verse 6 of Romans 2 and uh, Psalms 2 and other places, it talks about God rewarding each one for their work. Some translations would say render. Uh, reward isn't always the best word because today in the English language, the word reward is always used for in a good way. Uh, it used to be back in the 1600s that a person could be rewarded either negatively or positively. So it would not be unusual to say, um, if you keep teasing that pit bull, you'll be rewarded one day for that. Now, today we think, why would he be rewarded? It's going to be catastrophic. That dog ever gets a hold of him, he's going to tear him to pieces. Well, again, the word originally meant that you're going to be given a recompense or you're going to be rendered what you deserve, whether it's good or bad. It's just that that word is kind of moved, it's shifted uh, in the way that we use it. And so we use, other, we, we use other words to describe the negative consequences of something. But the word reward in the Bible um, can be used both ways. So just kind of keep that in mind. So let me read to you from Psalm 96, and I'll read in, beginning in verse 9. Verse nine. Psalm 96, beginning in verse 9 through verse 13. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Again, if you are a Christian, that passage is wonderful. And we are, we are rejoicing with all of creation, awaiting for the day for him to come and to judge the wicked. We, we anticipate that day. If you're not a believer, that's a horrific passage. Nobody wants that to come true. Who wants the judge to come? If I'm not a believer, I don't want him to come because if he judges me in righteousness, I'm going to receive everything I deserve. I don't want that. Nobody wants what they actually deserve because the Bible is very clear on what we deserve when it comes to our rebellion towards God. Let me read to you from the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And I'll begin reading in verse 11 through verse 15. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is a, hor a horrific passage to think about. And one that again brings joy to the believer and absolute fear and trembling to the non-believer. So we need to pray and ask God to help us to share the gospel effectively with others. And don't minimize the judgment of God or the wrath of God. You don't have to scream and yell. You don't have to scold. You don't have to be mean to anybody. We can just speak about it matter-of-factly, but ask 
God the Holy Spirit to convict those who don't know him, to feel the full weight of their sin and their need of Christ, and that we as believers will feel the full weight of our sin as well, that we may continually repent and be transformed by his Spirit into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your patience. We thank you, Father, again, for the truth of your word. We ask that these things would sink deeply into our hearts and minds, and that, Father, we'd be transformed by them. We do also, Father, ask that uh, you would ensure that those that we know that are non-believers, that you would give us opportunities to share Christ with them. And, Lord, that you would bless our feeble efforts to witness. And, Father, these words would not return void, but, Father, they would convict the sinner of his sin and his need of Christ. Until we meet again next time, Father, we thank you again and ask that you keep each one safe and remind us of these truths. For we do ask them in Christ's name. Amen.